Malcolm Honline is vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He is with us on a Friday morning broadcast here at JMDM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JMDM. Thank you, and welcome back to you. Appreciate that. Moments. Yeah, thank you. It was an amazing and Baruch Hashem Simchadik visit. Uh, and I thank everybody for all the Mazel Tov wishes. So uh, moments ago, we spoke to our Benji Kramer. He was giving us a little overview of Chaim Druckmann's life. I didn't have a chance last week to ask you. I, had, I would have to imagine you had some encounters uh, over your career with Rav Druckmann. What, what are your impressions, and what should we remember uh, about the incredible spiritual leader that we lost by Chaim Druckmann? He was an incredible person, he, and you know his career spanning many years of leadership, and he, you know, he wasn't so well known in the states all the time because he wasn't a flamboyant person. He was somebody who accomplished and who devoted himself both to building yeshivas and to the shachim and to to building communities. I last saw him uh, on during Sukkot when at the amazing Hakel event, which Ooh. is once every seven years, and right. he was invited. And he, despite being very frail. Uh, and as you, he read the uh, tefillah for the Medina there. And as you know, I had the privilege of having Glila to Bibi Netanyahu's Hagma. Right. And um, and so I had a chance to talk to him there briefly. And, you know, you could see that it was a strain on him, but he was persistent. He read tefillah, the whole thing through, in front of uh, more than 100,000 people. And uh, I had a chance, Baruch Hashem, to, to have a few words with him then. Yeah, quite a man, quite a leader, uh, quite a spiritual influence. And uh, at that time, as we said earlier today, at that time in our modern Jewish history, Six-Day War, post-Six-Day War, somebody who really demonstrated true love for Jews everywhere around the world, especially in Israel. Uh, How is the new government of the state of Israel holding up, and how does it compare to what we're seeing in Washington and our present United States government? Right now, virtually everybody looks good compared to what's going on in Washington. But, uh, you know, they'll get over that, too, one way or another. It's it's not the best uh, image to project, but it's democracy. And, and you know, when people talk about Israel, Israel was, uh, government was elected by a, a majority of the people, and the outcome is one in which... Um, uh, I think you know reflects the the will of the people, and uh, it will as it begins to function. People will be focused not so much just on the headlines or the occasional comment. I think people should be very careful with it. Leaders, especially, uh, both by what they do and and how they do it and what, and what they say. Right. Um, the the you know everybody's ready to jump on him, and anything that would normally just be passed over or, or ignored will be highlighted. Uh, if you remember when Sharon got elected, how the whole world reacted to it and said this extremist, etc. And, and he's the man who did the Gaza disengagement when yeah. Begin got elected. Yeah. Do you remember what the reaction is? And he's the one who made peace with Sadat. Yeah. It was true so often where people react uh, without giving a chance and, and power and responsibility temper people and, and you have to face reality. And that's what this government will have to do. The ministers will have to, to take over. Uh, I spoke to several this week, you know, who are just really saying they're coming into empty desks and they, uh, they have to build a staff. They have to, 
address ongoing issues. The world didn't stop, and Israel didn't stop while they were having an election. So you have to deal with taxes, you have to deal with security, you have to deal with so many issues uh, that Israel confronts on an ongoing basis. Netanyahu will be in charge, and, and you know, I, he's somebody who's not going to allow any kind of severance between Israel and the United States. There can be tensions, there can be differences, but but he understands the importance of the relationship. By the way, I saw someone comment from Israel that, you know, watching what's going on in Washington, you know, who can make fun of what goes on in the Knesset now? You know, the U.S. looks so much worse. I mean, the reality is they, they both have their problems. And I think, I think the comparison is frankly ridiculous, two different systems of government. But the reality is that they both have their problems and they both have their ridiculousness, right? Isn't that the right approach? They, but every system, tell me a government right. that doesn't exactly. look, look around the world. Right. And the truth is, as someone once said, you know, democracy is terrible, but it's a lot better than any other system that right. anybody has. Right. And whether it's a democracy with a list system or it's a democracy with a two-party system or whatever, uh, and a bicameral election uh, a government or one uh, body, uh, the fact is that, that democracies, because they, they can be challenged and because they can encounter some of these difficulties, the very virtue uh, of the system uh, I, 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 both, all of them are flawed. All of them need reforms, so to speak. But we have to to recognize there was a free election, and we should celebrate it. And the outcome reflects, and, and people of Israel have to hold the government to account now. Right. So, clarify this for me, because this week I had a chance to read. Last week I was obviously preoccupied. Uh, so, so and, and I know we discussed it last week, I just don't remember it. So BB does not have an additional portfolio. There is an official foreign minister, there's an official defense minister. He is simply prime minister and does not officially hold any other portfolio. Is that correct? That is correct. Right now he, he has given out the, the portfolios. Some, some ministers have more than one there. He has uh, right. health and interior, the, but the defense minister is Galant, the foreign minister is Ellie Cohen, right. and the, the jobs that Netanyahu ha- held including finance, at, at one point had four or five different portfolios. That hasn't been given out, and because you have a coalition that made a lot of demands on him, he had to create positions. There's a, the Ministry of Strategic Affairs was reestablished with right. Ron Dermer as the head, uh, and that's a ministry, I think, within the Prime Minister's office. But the others are, are all given out, and begin to function. And what do we know? I'm only asking this because I think, and you've heard me say this, that that the diaspora affairs minister and that position is much more important than it was, I don't know, say 15 years ago. I, I think it's a much more important role because as Israel realizes and the government of Israel realizes additional responsibilities to the diaspora when it really used to be in reverse, the diaspora always felt they were taking care of Israel. Do we know anything about Amichai Shikli and, and if he'll be effective in this position? Well, he has been around, and he is, um, uh, you know, he, he's not had a long history of experience. He will get it. He came out of a family. I think his father was a conservative rabbi in the United States. Uh, he has already expressed himself on some of the issues, uh, but I think the sensitive time for diaspora's relations, I think people are taking advantage of this right now, and, and we have to hold to account those who exploit uh, moments of tension or differences and without even giving a chance to them to to actually make a decision, uh, they can make their voices heard. I think you have to restrain yourself sometimes from public discourse so that once you, you begin it as a public fight, the enemies of, of Israel exploit it, as we already see some 
members in Congress and others saying, you know, making references to the American Jews because there, there were letters at 300 rabbis and others before there was a single decision or, or anything done. It's true. In, in campaigns, people say things that can be objectionable, and there are plenty of ways to voice those objections without the dividing the community and without endangering the, the long-term interests uh, of Israel. Right. And to make your voices heard and in Israel by um, having people go on Aliyah, they say, and other things, that does not, that there still has to be uh, some sensitivity to the concerns. And I think with clarification, a lot of the issues would be, will be diminished. Yeah, I think they always said what you just said, but they said it much more subtly. Now I think people are uh, saying things on a, on a much stronger and more insulting level, frankly. Um, when, they, when they're addressing diaspora jury. But we'll see. As you said, we have to see uh, exactly how things pan out. Um, tell me about Itamar Ben-Gvir and his visit to the Temple Mount and the reaction to it. Well, uh, you know, he, what he did, he, he really stuck by the rules. He did not violate any of the uh, obligations. He went early in the day. He might, did not go with a big entourage. But the problem was that he made announcements before which already mobilized Hamas and Hezbollah and everybody issuing threatening statements. And there may have been a price, you know, with in terms of Netanyahu's visit to the UAE being postponed. Uh, and, of course, uh, others that, that came out with very strong statements. And we had a session at the United Nations, which is just simply another outrage that, that with all the issues in the world, more resolutions were passed this year against Israel than all the other countries together. <laughs> that that the, the, this issue about our uh, rights, their most sacred site, and again, he didn't he didn't uh, stop and pray. He didn't do any of the things that that would be violative of the rules. Uh, again, I would have wished that he would have not made it public before. Just do it, and then uh, you know you wouldn't have thrown that thrown down the gauntlet. To, to give an excuse to the anti-Israel forces to, to express themselves. Many people believe that we, we have to have the right and that the only Jews can't pray there. Uh, Muslims can, uh, and I think Christians can't either, because the lock uh, pressure that was brought to bear. Uh, this, these are people, there are people who go back and analyze, you know, how all this came about since 67. Whatever, we have to deal with the reality as it is today. And, you know, it's become a sensitive point and a flashpoint and all sorts of terminologies that are used. But to deny Jews the right and to, to not acknowledge the historical realities as they, as they do and as, as they've been attempting to do, you should not see that. Um, and, and, you know, the U.N.'s readiness to jump on, on any occasion, on anything, uh, on Israel and to see that, you know, we can make the case that they don't have an absolute majority anymore, that they got, I think, 45% of the vote of countries UN. So the, the numbers are diminishing. But the fact is that this campaign continues and they still can get an automatic uh, majority. And, and they voted to go to the International Court of Justice for an opinion uh, against Israel on on the settlements and this is an, an ongoing campaign that we're going to see, and eventually it could have real consequences. Um, the President of the United States reacted to Ben Greer's visit, right? right? He, he reacted, uh, and but I think the United States' reaction was fairly mild, uh, but they were critical, I think, in the in the UN, um, and the the re reaction in the region 
uh, you know, people looked at the vote and you saw that it's disappointing that um, UAE was, together with China, is the one who brought this to the Security Council, but they have the Arab representative seat on the Security Council, so they do it because they represent the, the Arab countries. Um, the, the same thing is true that you have um, countries like Azerbaijan and others that are really good friends of Israel just announcing first ever uh, a full-time ambassador in Israel. So you can't have a rush to judgment, but it's it's unfortunate when we when we have an unnecessary crisis like this. Um, as Netanyahu said, it was a disgraceful resolution, and it you know it's it's ludicrous in the light of history. But the and they do it regarding uh, quote Israel's uh, annexation and the legal status of the occupation. Those are the term terminology that we use, and the vote was eighty seven in favor. 26 against, and I think 50-some abstentions. Israeli actions on Temple Mount, unacceptable, U.S. tells United Nations Security right. Council, correct? Yeah, I thought In the speech that was made yeah, on the floor. Yeah, I thought it was a direct, um, directly attributed to President Biden, but I don't know what I'm confusing that with. Um, uh, by the way, on the app, there's somebody who's uh, promoting you to be Speaker of the House. Are you interested at all in that? Uh, I think they Is it have a full-time job? I, I, I no no joke. I think I heard someone say that legally anybody can be voted in this. Anybody speaker. can be. Yeah, you don't have to. Malcolm, be. Malcolm. I'll think over Shabbos. You're what? That's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listener sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSiegel.com and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Russia offers a ceasefire. Um, Zelensky says no. At the same time, the United States agrees to $3 billion worth of aid. What update could you give us regarding the Ukraine? That is the update. They offered him a, a, a Russian Orthodox uh, Christmas holiday break. And uh, the, the Ukrainians said that this is because, you know, they're, they're at a disadvantage. They want to they use this to rearm and to regroup. Uh, obviously, they've, they've suffered some serious losses, uh, especially with the hit that may have taken 90 lives or many more, according to some Ukrainian sources. Um, and the, um, uh, they didn't offer a, a, a ceasefire for the regular Christmas. So the Ukrainians are saying that, you know, this is just a ploy, but um, and the U.S. Aid. it's smart on its part. Right. And the U.S. aid, I mean, look, Malcolm, you know this from 20th and 21st century history. In fact, you could probably tell us about some of the wars in this century that have gone on since the beginning of the century. I mean, th th this could turn into a conflict, as we know, that could last God knows how long. How much longer will the United States continue to shell out so many billions at a time every time Ukraine comes begging? That's a, it's a very important question. You see that there is growing re resentment and, uh, you know, people wanting to set a limit on how much we fund them. The, there's obviously a human tragedy that we have to address. There is also the, you know, physical uh, needs the, the, um, for wounded, for treatment, um, but, uh, and the shortage of food. Uh, Etc. That that exists, but uh, I'm, I think that with time you'll start to get more and more of uh, opposition growing um, to the bottomless uh, allocation of funds uh, and the the kind of uh, uh, arms that we're sending. We are upgrading the arms uh, constantly, and it seems that they are being more and more effective on the ground. Uh, the the 
leaving uh, the Ukrainians to their own devices doesn't seem to be an option. We see also European countries uh, doing more. Um, but um, but I, I, I fear the backlash. And then you start getting this isolationist uh, uh, philosophy dominant, becoming more and more dominant, more and more accepted as people are suffering economically today they they see tens of billions of dollars being sent to any uh, need um it becomes uh, m- much more controversial and and difficult so we have to think about the the broader implications as well wow this could go on a long long time and it can and can be on a low it can be on a low burner but you have constant you know shooting and you know, I think that uh, there could be a fight to regain the the, the Crimea uh, from from Russia. I think those are the goals that the Ukraine has now. They are obviously fighting very vigorously and and effectively, and that a lot of the recruits coming in the Russian side are inexperienced. They're new, young guys that have been just brought in. So, and the losses are are very heavy. And I think when we see the full accounting, if we ever really do, will be uh, shocking to many people. Medvedev threatens the United States with hypersonic cruise missiles, meaning that they're ready to attack the United States. Like, what are they? What is the threat? The threat is that they will. They will. Uh, they have this ship that uh, is outfitted with hypersonic missiles that they're going to have cruising around the world. They they, they escalate the threat because you know of American intervention and you know the the um, we see that they have turned to Iran increasingly. Iran. Uh, has sent sold them uh, hundreds and hundreds or more than a thousand already of, of these um, drones, which are not the most effective because they're big and lumbering, and and many of them get shot down before they get to their targets. Uh, but also and also missiles, and in return they're talking about selling selling them to Sukhoi bombers to to the to Ukraine to um, Iran, whose air force has been completely depleted. They don't get spare parts and. Uh, that's why you don't see uh, Iranian planes very much in the, in the air, and they develop these small submarines, developing all sorts of other things um, to to do. And you, you you saw it, by the way, this week in another story that doesn't get much attention. The the, the um, exercises they did at the Straits of Hormuz. It's often done annually, but it's still a, a serious um, maneuver at the mouth of the of the Straits of Hormuz, to which. Much of the world's oil is generally um, traverses, and so they they are putting on shows of strength. But the fact is that they are they are not that strong, and they 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 want to set up a manufacturing line in Russia. We're told uh, China, I think, has been quite restricted in the weapons that they've been selling. Although they obviously trade and they buy all the energy, the oil from Russia and from Iran still. And by the way, in that regard, as I don't want to forget, because I think it's an important story that got neglected for the first time in four years, we bought Venezuelan oil this week. Wow. Which is just nuts. Wow. How does it, how did all these things fall under the radar? You know, back to the other one for a second, a, th- a, a threat against the United States of hypersonic cruise missiles. At one time, that would have gotten a lot of it. At one time, that would be the lead story. You know, the night. Yeah, but I don't think people take it seriously. They're not about to launch it. They're in no position to, you know, right. their their military has been exposed to weaknesses that they have. He shouldn't dismiss it, but right. it, so why doesn't the Venezuela? He, he had the ability. He would he would be exercising it in uh, in Ukraine right now. Right. Well, that's scary. Um, then why does the Venezuela oil not get any headlines? 
I have no idea, but the idea that we're strengthening uh, an Iranian ally, when we were doing sanctions, we were interdicting their shipments coming from Venezuela, from Iran to Venezuela. We know that they have that plane that goes from Venezuela to Iran to Damascus uh, and now to Iran much more often. Um, I, I, I don't know why we would in any way economically benefit uh, Venezuela. They say that they made some gestures, but there's no evidence that in any way they they are moving uh, more in terms of America's interest in South America, a continent that is constantly shifting under their in- influence, and that we know that all the elections that have taken place recently, whether from Brazil to Colombia to Costa Rica, etc., and Chile have brought to power hostile forces in addition to the Nicaragua, uh, Venezuela, the Bolivarian states, and all those that are strongly influenced by by Iran and Hezbollah has training camps there. You know, we, we, we ignore South America to our peril. Yeah, it's uh, but it's certainly in it's certainly benefiting someone's interests. I don't want to blame everything on Hunter Biden, but uh, someone someone must be uh, uh, you know making something off of this deal or you know arranging this deal for uh, for their benefit. I would guess. Who knows how? I hate to be so cynical, but after all, we see what's happening uh, around the world. Why in Iran do I read on the same uh, website? of death sentences that are being um that are being uh, issued for those who are involved in protests and at the same time some high profile people being released on bail even though they were released uh, even though they were involved in the protests I, I assume there's no rhyme or reason to how the iranians react to those that they uh, uh that they take into custody after these protests well, there is uh, uh, um, some pattern to it, but you can't say, you can't point to why some of the people are being charged and sentenced to death. And there were executions, and we believe there were some this week as well. Right, that's what it looks and like, yeah. Unexecuted more people this past year than any country in the world, almost, I think, 600. And that, that there are many people on death row that they've arrested, tens of thousands perhaps, but including young people. Uh, age of nine and fifteen, and the the public execution on the top of the crane, and it doesn't get any real condemnation uh, aside from some verbal reference. But at the United Nations, they can continue to come out and attack and criticize, uh, uh, and and um, and yet their death sentences uh, elicit so, so few responses, and the clearly trumped up charges against people who are just opposition to the government, speaking against the government, you know, making a comment on television, critical of government now has brought a a death sentence against a a man who uh, merely said things that we would take for granted. Any, it's, it's, um, Malcolm, we're having trouble hearing you. You may have to move closer to the base or whatever, but we're having trouble hearing you. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Maybe my voice needs to be clarified. I, but it sounds like a, a technical issue, not your voice issue. But oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what to do, but um, I'm in the same position as I have been for 30 years. I never move, so I can be here Friday on time. Um, the the um, 
uh, well, that's, anyway, that's we baffling. talked about the death sentences. Yeah. yeah, that's baffling to me. Not as important as the death sentences in Iran, but uh, I always thought moving closer to the base actually helped. Maybe I'm wrong about that. When you speak to the people in Iran, and you do this on a regular basis, and obviously you're up to date on the protests and rallies, and you're up to date on these, unfortunately, executions, and obviously you hear the news when people are released on bail. What are they telling you now about the economy? Is it the same way you've described over the last couple of months? It's just completely reeling and there's no hope? It's worse, and it's getting worse all the time. I think that the, the Toman, there's 40,000 Toman to the dollar, which is just so outrageous. It's, it's, uh, it gets worse and worse. The economy is in, in free fall. They can't deal with the drought. They can't deal with the unemployment. They can't deal with the drug needs and COVID, et cetera. And the, the, uh, the people, the, the opposition is more and more widespread. There was an interesting story again when you told, when uh, I try to cite things that that the press right. uh, almost ignores. Igno- ignores. Right. <laughs> you know, they announced six candidates for for the presidency of Iran. They didn't announce the names yet. They're going to do it, I think, this week. But you know, the Guardian Council, and if you remember from past elections, where I try to explain how you know people put forward a candidacy and there are thousands and they whittle it down and has to go before the guardian council and has to go through other bodies to get approved until you end up with one or two candidates that then run but they all have to be super approved that's true for the marshals candidates too so here you now they whittled it down to six candidates and the whole press ignores it which tells us we're going to have an election to a replacement for Khamenei and you know somebody obviously that he approves but but that process is moving ahead. Um, and I, I think that the, um, I don't remember what your question was, but well, I was the, asking the about, the, about the elections is important. No, I was asking about the economy. And didn't we just recently have an Iran election or was that more local? Was that, there was a different no, that parliament, that was a parliament had election. local elections, but this is for, for the leadership. And it's, uh, it's, it's very contentious because you have a lot of opposition growing and, and the level of dissent keeps going higher and higher within uh, the 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 uh, leadership, the IRGC, and the leadership is a lot of discontent. Remember, people's families are not are not able to feed their families or have difficulty because of the economic collapse. And the the um, by the way, this week was the anniversary of the the elimination of Mr. Suleimani, which became right. uh, you know occasion for many anti-U.S. Uh, events and including two rockets that hit a U.S. base in eastern Syria, which was attributed to the being the anniversary. And it's a there are a lot of U.S. troops that are housed there. I think it's 900. Um, so this is the third anniversary that they that they marked. Um, so the, the the internal situation continues. There are demonstrations in 250 cities. Larger and larger groups, more and more professional groups, doctors, lawyers, others are joining the demonstrations. And how do they and, live under those economic circumstances? It's just that's that's it's impossible for me to understand. How to ask the Iranians? How do you do? You, you, people living on pension are literally eliminated their, their, their income. They they had if you had fifty thousand, they lopped off four zeros. You had five dollars, and uh, and it's it's quite amazing. You don't know how do they. How do they afford? Remember, Iran is continuing to sell oil, and they sell on the black market. So the IRGC and the Supreme Leader's House they, they control forty percent of the economy. So they take that off the top, and whatever's left uh, goes to the people. But you see, even demonstrations within the um, bazaar, 
uh, their people somehow manage to survive. I, I don't know how regularly they survive, but they, they do. And the, but, but the young people in particular, it feeds the, the, dissent, the, the dissent and the uh, kind of demonstrations that are going on. And, and, you know, we've seen more violence, by the way, in the demonstrations as well. And they can't leave. I forget about the Jewish community for a moment. Basically, anybody there, it would be a very difficult task to try to leave. Oh, the, 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 the brain drain there is constant. You know, about 100,000 of their best graduates and other leave the country every year. It is, um, they, they can get out, and they do leave, and they get jobs everywhere. You know that, that uh, more than 1,000 of the top leadership have children who are studying in the United States or, or have houses or are living here, and they're preparing so that they can go out. Many bought houses and, and try to get citizenship in Venezuela because they anticipate the collapse of the regime and want to have a place that they can escape to. Right. Uh, uh, and, and there are other locations as well. But, you know, the United States has to take action to prevent uh, becoming an escape hatch for people who are involved in the murders, the executions, and the subjugation of the Iranian people. Finally, um, it, what would you say to President Biden if you had an opportunity to speak to him right after he compared illegal immigrants coming to the United States to Jews fleeing Nazi Germany. Yeah, it was a very unfortunate thing, but I, I don't think he intended anything bad. If you saw, and I, I watched the, the tape of that uh, exchange, he was uh, he's saying that there are times when what he said, and this is the context in which he made the comment, was that there are times when you know people leaving and people having to be admitted is the right thing to do, as, as Jews leaving Germany. Uh, should have been, and we're not in the case of the United States. Mm. Um, so I, I, I don't think he can jump on every every statement and, and make a federal case. I think you know he has made other comments when we see that he, he just um, it doesn't seem to have been a scripted uh, uh, comment. Will you have a chance to see the prime minister next week? You don't know yet. Uh, I will certainly see the members of the new government next week. So you might see the prime minister. Uh, could be. Has he I has known him for forty some years? Has he autographed his new book for you yet? He, he actually talked to me about his new book, and he quotes me in there. Nice, even though it's not completely correct. But the <laughs> reference. But, <laughs> but, but but I told him, why didn't you ask me before? I don't just tell me. He said, no, no, look at it first, and then, then I did look at it, and, and, that, and that was that. Now now I know why you won't see him next week. <laughs> <laughs> no, not after this, I won't. But um, he, he, uh, I, I hope to, to see him. And we've had you know a close relationship for all the years. And I know many of the members of the new government uh, are old friends. So it's um, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of quality here. Defense Minister Gallant and right. um, Ellie Cohen is a new person, a new uh, quantity we have to see. But many of the others are not. Ron Dermer, obviously, yeah, yeah. being the government, and Dichter, others who are experienced and, and longtime friends and, and very concerned about the Israel-Diaspora relationship, and that's why I'm, I'm more confident. And uh, I think there will be greater sensitivity and, and and more awareness as we move ahead. A lot of old names, a lot of new names. Malcolm will keep us up to date regarding next Friday's schedule. Hopefully he'll be with us from, uh, from uh, Jerusalem. And if not, obviously we'll update everybody. Have a, a wonderful trip and a wonderful Shabbos, Malcolm, and thanks so much. We'll uh, speak again hopefully next week. Great Shabbos to everyone. Malcolm Holmline, Vice Chairman, Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, with us Fridays at uh, 8.40 a.m. Eastern Time.
8.40. At 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time right here at JM in the AM. <laughs> it was 8.40. I guess the show would be over by now.